Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Today in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy will review the charges and evidences against man and the general revelations given to man. Alright, please turn your Bibles with me, please, to the Book of Romans, chapter 1. I want to read from verse number 18, and then we'll pick up uh, this morning, verses 20 and verses 21. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I've explained that already. That is what it should be. If you were to check any lexicon, any commentary, you'll find that it's talking about men suppressing the truth and repressing the truth. Verse uh, 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the convocation that we have here this morning. Our people assembled, singing praise to you. Uh, we ask you this morning as we move into the second phase of the morning session, your word, I pray that we would focus our minds on your truth. We ask you to give us understanding. We pray for those who might be here this morning and who have never uh, trusted the Lord, uh, who is living a life of rebellion, and uh, who are offering all kinds of pretentious reasons as to why they have not embraced the Christian faith. They are trying to find excuses. But we thank you that your word meets them at that juncture and says to every man that they're without excuse. Your spirit, O oh Lord, who is the one that inspired your word and the one that superintended the giving of your word uh, to the holy men of God that you chose to inscripturate your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, would guide us in an understanding of the principles of Scripture as we find here in Paul's writings. 
Lord, we pray that what we're doing and the systematic way in which we're going through this book uh, will prove very helpful to believers to grasp the fundamental essentials of the human condition and especially the fact that man needs uh, redemption and to help us in our evangelism to know that you have prepared in a very uh, important way the minds and hearts of men because of what you've implanted and what you've created within man. Your implanted conscience, your innate God consciousness that you've given to man allies itself with scripture. And so when we are dealing with men, help us to deal with men from that perspective. Help us not to be intimidated by all the rigmarole that they spew out of their mouths. May all the excuses that they offer uh, help us to face them with the facts of scripture and depending on your spirit to bring the conviction that he is promised to bring in the lives of people. Thank you, Lord, for caring enough for us, not only for saving us, but thank you for caring enough for us to give us your book to guide us as we meander our way through this wilderness and as we confront situations that others who are not Christians are totally baffled by, but which to us are simple matters because your truth is so transparent and so clear for us that it's just a matter of obedience and uh, avoid this, help us to avoid this matter of compromise. Guide us now this morning and help us as we continue our series on the book of Romans. And we come to another phase in this chapter. Uh, I pray that we would see the connection and the fact that there is a continuity between what has gone before and what is coming after. And that your word is so logical and so rational that it, it almost, in a sense, presents axiomatic truth to us. Truth that we can accept on its face value uh, without any sense that there's any error or any confusion here. We thank you for your clarity of your word. Now just give us a responsive heart this morning. Give us an understanding mind. But above all, give us submissive wills. That whether the scripture rub us the wrong way or the right way, that our proper duty would be to submit to his teachings. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, what you're going to do. And we commit the service into your hand. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 down to chapter 2, you'll find that the Apostle Paul is prosecuting a case about human guilt before God. The Apostle Paul charges man with three crimes against God, three offenses. He charges man, number one, for being ungodly. And that means, quite frankly, that he has sinned against God. And while he has sinned against God in some overact or by some benign neglect, the truth of the matter is that man has been lives an ungodly life. The second charge that Paul brings against man is unrighteousness. Because he has offended God, it naturally follows that he would offend his fellow man. 
So he not only sins against God, he sins against his fellow man. And uh, the Apostle Paul brings this as a charge against man. But then there's a third charge that Paul brings against man. And it is this. That man willfully, deliberately suppresses the truth that he knows to be so. And that's why Paul says they hold down the truth and repress the truth in unrighteousness. Now to prove his case, the Apostle Paul calls three witnesses to give evidence against man. You remember that number one, the Apostle Paul appeals to the implanted God consciousness that is in man. He said that God has placed it in man. It is something that a man can't rip into his chest and pull it out. He can't read any kind of data and somehow confuse it. God has placed it there. And every single man has this witness in himself. You are born knowing there's a God. You can't help it. And the only way that you force against it, you can fight against it. But believe you me, it is there. And in that final day of judgment, it will come out and speak to you. And listen, uh, I want to say to you that you will declare with the Apostle Paul that you are without excuse. So, so there's not only an implanted God consciousness. The second witness Paul talks about is an uh, innate moral conscience. In other words, you not only know there's a God. I know something else about every single one of you. You know right from wrong. And you don't have to be taught right from wrong. Because God has given you a moral conscience. And that is why as I pointed out, it doesn't matter where you go in the world. There are certain things that are wrong in every civilization. Every civilization. Theft, murder, adultery. Those are, every civilization, those are things that are wrong. Now you explain that to me. The most sophisticated westerner. The most backward pagan, they all hold to certain essential moral code. And that's because there's an implanted conscience within man. But then there's a third witness that Paul brings against man is what we call the impeccable witness of creation. And Paul's argument is that when a man looks at creation, he can see one or two things, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. What can man discover when he looks at creation. But I want to mention there's the fourth witness that I should have mentioned. And it's also found in, in, in Romans. So there's not only the implanted God consciousness, there's not only the innate moral conscience that you have, it's not only the impeccable witness of creation, but Paul goes on in verses 23 to 31 to talk about the witness of man's immoral conduct. And he mentions 19 sins. That if you read the list and read the newspaper, you wonder if he got them for the newspaper. Because really, things haven't changed. The immoral behavior of man also is a witness that Paul brings against him. So there are two internal witnesses and there are two external witnesses. And the Apostle Paul's argument is this. These witnesses are true of every single human being. It is universal. And whether a man be a savage or whether he be a civilized individual, the fact of the matter is, these four witnesses bear testimony against him. Now, 
It is interesting that when you look at scripture apart from Romans chapter 1, and that you will see that this irrefutable evidence is again and again brought to man's attention. For example, I want to show you an interesting verse in uh, Acts chapter 14. Turn there for just a moment. Acts chapter 14 and verse number 17. Now you remember that the Apostle Paul is on the missionary journey. He comes to a place called Lystra and he meets some barbarians. I didn't say Barbadians, okay, barbarians. Which simply means some uncivilized people, heathens. And it is interesting, when Paul is preaching to them, Paul says something that is totally amazing. Look at verse 17. He says to them, Nevertheless, he left not himself without a what? A witness. <laughs> He's telling the, the barbarians, in spite of everything, God has not left himself without a witness to you. And then notice what he says. In that he did what? Good. And gave us what? Rain from heaven and fruit. And full season filling our hearts with food and with gladness. Paul is saying to the barbarians, these uncivilized people he's, he's ministering to and he's preaching to. And he said to them, look, you know that God didn't leave himself without a witness. And what he appeals to? The providence of God in providing for his creature. It's a fascinating study in itself. That is why Paul says in verse 20, there are without excuse. That is why in verse 19 he says, it is manifest in them. God has shown it to them. Verse 20 said that it is clearly seen. Verse 21 said, the new God. Verse 12 says, the change the truth of God into a lie. So the, the point that the Apostle Paul is making here, that the thing that no one can disprove or can refute, is that man has a basic fundamental knowledge that there is a supreme being who is the creator. Now I didn't say a supreme force. And I deliberately say that. See? I didn't say a, a supreme power. An inanimate power. See? I said that man is conscious that there is a supreme being. An entity. See? By the way. I need not remind you that atheism is not something that is normal or natural. It has to be learned. Has to be learned. And for those of you who would try to disprove that, you love statistics, don't you? You like empirical evidence. You're the scientist. Right? You can't take simple Bible statements. Could I say something to you that it is only about 1% of the human race that are atheists? See how abnormal that is? Are you normal? I would hope so. That is why it's incredible that a man can be an atheist. 99% of the human race recognize a God. 1% say there's no God. Look, I would wonder something's wrong with me. Don't tell me the 99 wrong. You've got to be very egotistical to believe that. See? And that's the problem with you. Your pride and your, as Paul said, they hold down the truth in unrighteousness. They don't mean that they, they hold it down in an unrighteous manner. It means that they hold it down because they are unrighteous and they want to live an unrighteous life. That's what it means. 
And that's really where you get a lot of atheism from. Uh, men uh, do not want to face the truth of scripture because it interferes with their lifestyle. And so what they've got to do, they've got to come up with some fictitious response. So that they can normalize their wickedness and then find some basis for denying God. And that is where, of course, Darwin came in and offered a scientific argument against God. So there are three forms of general revelation that God uses to speak to men. And uh, the Apostle Paul is going to deal with that uh, in just a moment. Now, what we've been covering uh, in the last study is that there are certain things that God has revealed to man. Now when we talk about revelation, we are talking about the act whereby God communicates himself or his truth to man. And that is truth that man would not have known otherwise had God not communicated it. And of course, the, the kind of truth that Paul is talking about here is what we call general revelation. And uh, Paul is saying that God has revealed himself to the natural phenomenon that we see around us. And that from that natural phenomenon, we can discover certain things about God. Now, let me show you another interesting verse before we proceed this morning. Look at Acts chapter 17. And look at verse number 26. Well, uh, look at verse 24 so you'll get the, the context. God has made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with man's hands, as though he need anything, seeing he giveth to all life, breath, and all things. Verse 26. And have made of all, made of one blood all nations of, the, of, of men, for to dwell upon the face of the earth, and hath determined, what? The times before appointed, and the what? The boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek after the Lord, if happily they might find him. Well, the Apostle Paul is here saying that God has so arranged the world, both the times and the seasons of nations and people. He has set boundaries of where each country should be. Now that's why I say to you, when people fight against history, you have to deny this when and that's why it's discomforting for man to, 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 to hold to the sovereignty of God and yet fight against history. Because if God is sovereign and he controls history, if he sets boundaries, it must be his will for what exists. It doesn't mean he approves the way that everything is done. That's not the point. But the reason why he has done what he has done is what? To move man to do what? Seek him. That is another uh, a, a biblical truth about uh, general revelation uh, that Paul is talking about. So there are three forms of general revelation that we looked at. We talk about uh, creation. I want you to look at another verse. Look at Psalms chapter 19 for just a moment. Psalms chapter 19. I think we all know this verse and this chapter. And, but let me just read a few parts of it for just a moment. It says the heavens do what? Declare what? <laughs> it's amazing. In Romans, Paul contrasts man and said that man did not what? Glorify God. 
The psalmist says that the heavens glorify God. Here is the animate rational man who has far more intelligence than the inanimate, but yet it manifests and glorifies God. Notice, day unto day unto a speech. And then it goes on to say, a night unto night show wisdom. So when a man look at the universe, look at the stars, look at the heavens, whether he look at day or night, they say one thing. There's a great big God that did all of this. See? And then notice verse 3. There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. So whether you be Chinese or Spanish or French or English, or whether you speak some other strange language, it is said, whoever looks at the heaven, what language? You hear the language that there's a God. It's a universal language. The heavens speak a universal language to all men irrespective. But it doesn't stop there. The line has gone out throughout all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. And in them he has set his tabernacle, the sun. The point is that from the north to the south to the east to the west, wherever man is, there is a universal witness as to God's glory. See? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Uh, similarly here in the book of uh, Romans chapter 1. When he says that the invisible things of him are known. Being made known by the things that are created. By the way, don't you ever heard the guy David Hume? David Hume was the Englishman who was a philosopher. But he was a skeptic. Didn't believe that could be a God. It could be a God. But... You know, it is said that uh, when he was walking across a, a field one night with a friend called Adam Ferguson, as he was walking to, here's a man who's skeptic. He suddenly stopped and said, Adam, there's a God. See? The things that just awakened. I was hearing, uh, I was hearing the, the, not the, the great Christians, serve great Christians uh, sometime this week about C.S. Lewis. And uh, C.S. Lewis went through a long transitional period from unbelief to faith. But what finally brought C.S. Lewis to, to faith, according to what I heard on the radio, shocked me. It was a visit to a zoo. No, I'm serious. Uh, he, he said that that was the crowning moment, a visit to a zoo. See? While he was searching for God, and this was not the only thing that led him finally back to faith. But he said that the final uh, icing on the cake, the final crown on my pursuit of God is that when I visited the zoo. You know what he saw? He saw the handiwork of God. See? Now that might not be the thing that will bring you to faith. Because God has varied means to deal with different individuals. But I was just shocked that the great intellectual C.S. Lewis. That that would be the thing that he said. Was the final thing that led me to, to back to the Lord. Creation. Creation. Voltaire, the French Infidel who boasted that he would destroy Christianity in his lifetime. It is said that when they came through a terrible alpine thunderstorm. That Voltaire was praying. See? <laughs> yeah you could deny God when everything is going alright brother. <laughs> but believe me the new face death. Somehow there is a strange thing that awakened with you. That they are dealing with a God. See? So I'm saying to you that Paul talks about creation and then we talked about providence. That God sustains what he has made. He upkeeps it. And his providence, he sustains an orderly arrangement of things. Again, I want you to look at uh, Psalm chapter 20, uh, 104 for just a minute. 
the book of Psalms 104. So not only the creation, but the providence of God that we talked about in the next last sermon. Uh, I want to just say a few things here about that in Psalms 104. Look at verse number 5 to verse number 8 for just a moment. Who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever? Who covers it with a deep as with a garment? The waters stood above the mountains. As at their rebuke they fled. At the voice of thy thunder they hasted away. They go up by the mountains. They go down by the valleys into the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast sent, set a bond that they may not pass over. That they turn not again to cover the earth. You, you know what he's talking about there? Anybody here does geography? I know they still teach that subject. <laughs> but all he's talking about here is the water cycle. That God covers the sky with water. And then he, he pushes it up, up, up the mountain. And what happens when they push up the mountain? Those of you that know anything about geography... It causes condensation. And where it flows back to where it started. <laughs> that is providence. That's the water cycle. Now here's David who don't have a geography. Never been to secondary school. But yet the spirit of God informs David that rain just don't happen to fall. There's a cycle. It's called a, the water cycle. It comes out of the ocean. It fills the air. And then it's pushed down. Goes to the mountain. The mountain is too high. And the air it begins to condense. That is providence. That is God taking care. And then look at verse number 9. Thou hast set in bonds that they may not pass over, that they turn out again to cover the earth. You know that that's the gravitational force between the moon and the, and, and, and the earth. The interplay of those gravitational forces is what kept, keeps... You know the moon is what controls the tides, do you not? I'm teaching you geography for just a moment. But this is what David is talking about. That God has set laws in place. That he says to the sea, you can only come so far. And that those laws are circumscribed by the gravitational forces that interact between the planets. This is not an accident. This is a divine hand of God sustaining his creation. And then look at verse number 10. He sendeth the springs into the valley which run... Among the hills, they drink, uh, to give drink to every beast of the field. The wild asses quench their thirst. By them shall the fowls of the heaven have their habitation, which sing among the branches. He watereth the hills from his chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causeth the grass to grow for the cattle. What's he saying? Here is God, providential maintenance of his creation. You know, we, we live in a world where there's no longer any mystery. And, and because we don't see mystery any longer, as a matter of fact, I will say to you, we hardly look at nature. When last you heard a bird sing? I'm serious. When last you heard a bird chirping out your window and it, it caused you some marvel? No, you're plugged in. You're plugged in. So you hear nothing. But when you look at nature and allow nature to, to minister to you in its silent voice, it says to you one thing. There's a God. There's a God. 
And this is what Paul is saying, that, that man can know God, not only by the creator, but the fact that he sustains what he's provided. And then look at verse number 15 quickly. And wine that maketh glad the hearts of men, and oil to make his face to shine, and, and bread which is strength. In other words, he not only provides for the lesser creature, but he's, he's building up to a moment that even is taken care of by God. Now you'll find out, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, there's a reason why I'm doing this, you know. There's a reason why I'm doing this. Because you will find that later, when Paul talks about what are the obligations upon a man who has this general revelation. What are the two things a man that has this revelation, what should he do? And, and one of those, I don't want to, I'll come into it shortly. But general revelation imposes certain obligations upon man. Because of this revelation, there are certain things that should follow. Yes. And Paul said, they did not do these two things. And then Paul said, they are without excuse. Now you'll begin to see why, where I'm headed shortly. And while I give you this kind of background. And then, of course, uh, look at verse 16. And the trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he have planted where the birds make their nests as for the stork and fir trees, etc. He not only gives man food, water, but he also gives shelter. And by the way, the, Le- the trees of Lebanon here, I know the, the birds dwell in the trees of Lebanon, but the trees of Lebanon give you the seed to build your home. See? So what he's talking about, food, water, and shelter. This is what God has given to man in his providential dealings. So not only the fact that you can see a creator... But also when you look at it, you ask yourself, how is it that the one who's created had made things and arranged things in such a way that my needs are met? My needs are met. And then of course, the third general revelation we talked about has to do with history. And I pointed out to you that the Christian system finds in history a revelation of God's power and God's purpose and God's sovereignty. Have you ever thought about it for just a moment? How different the world would be if Napoleon had won and Wellington had lost at the Battle of Waterloo. Do you know what you'll be speaking today? It's French. You want to speak French? (laughs) No, think about it. If Wellington had won, uh, if Napoleon had won as opposed to Wellington, the whole world, the world as it is, let me just tell you as a pastor, I'm very glad that I am English. When I say English, I mean speak English. I feel for people who speak Chinese and so on. Because I'm talking from a pastoral point of view. Look, we have so many aids as a pastor in the English speaking world. So many tools that are available to us. Uh, they are so limited in other languages. So as a pastor, I can go on the internet and almost find anything I want to find. Get almost any kind of help I want to help because I speak English. So from a pastoral point of view, thank God for the way history has gone. But just imagine what it would have been if it had been reversed. Can I ask you another question? What if Germany had won the Second World War? You think about that for just a moment. What if Germany had won the Second World War with her allies, the Japanese and the Italians. What kind of a world we would be in? And by the way, when you read about the mystery of how when they landed on Normandy, I am told that 
only about 3% of those that landed in Normandy landed in the spot they're supposed to, to land. But I'm told that as the ships are going across, there was a tremendous fog that hid the, the ships from the, the Germans. Now, is that a coincidence? The point I'm making here is that God controls history. God is sovereign in history. See? And it's almost virtually impossible for man not only to look at creation and look at providence and then look at history. And don't believe that God's superintending hand has been creating what is. Now I know, listen, I know when I say that, a lot of you say, but pastor, what about the atrocities? Tremendous atrocities, no question about that. Right? But I will tell you what I believe. See? I believe every nation on the heaven that goes into idolatry is punished by God. Every single one of them. See? And I will, I will tell you that when you look back at history, when we really see what God was doing, we'll begin to understand that a lot of what has happened is because man went away from God and God brought them into bondage. He did that with the Jews, did he not? He did that to the Jews. And he's done that to every single nation. When a nation or a planet or a, a people go from going to idolatry, God always chastens them. Pastor, I don't like you saying that. Well, I'm sorry if you don't like uh, that's the gospel truth. You, you have a problem. I don't have a problem. Good. And let me show you another interesting verse uh, in this connection. Look at uh, Psalm chapter 75. You know what the psalmist does in this, this particular passage? He makes the bold claim that the fortunes of leaders and kings are, and empires are in the hands of God. Look at what he says in Psalms 75 and uh, verse number 6 and 7. He said, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the north. But God is the judge. He does what? He puts down one and he sets up another. And if you read the context, he's talking about the control of nations. God rises up the Babylonians. And then when they did their evil and went into a way, God brought the Medo-Persians. And when God was finished with the Medo-Persians, he brought the Greeks. And when he was finished with the Greeks, he brought the Romans. And he still got one more to do, the revived Roman Empire. It's all written in the book of Daniel. Prophecy is just pre-written history. See? And listen, there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing you can do about it. And the emphasis here is that God is seen not only in creation. He's seen not only seen in providence. He's also seen in connection with history. The fortunes of nations. It is God that rises up one nation and God pulls down another nation. His will is being worked out on planet earth. And I know for some of you that might offend your sensitivity. But you can't hold to scripture and hold to the sovereignty of God and have some lopsided idea on this whole matter. Now by the way, when you go through the Old Testament, the fact that God deals with nations, God controls nations, is illustrated in the several nations that you find God interacting with in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus 9, he deals with Egypt. In uh, Isaiah chapter 10, Ezekiel chapter 2, he deals with Assyria. 
In Jeremiah chapter 50 and verse 1 to 16, 51 to 4, he deals with Babylon. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24 to 45, he deals with the Medo-Persian Empire. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 1 to 8, he deals with Greece. In Daniel chapter 7, he deals with Rome. And I don't have to tell you, the entire history of the Old Testament is dealings with Israel. He don't only deal with individuals, he deals with nations. Because nations are made out of individuals. And to deal with individuals, he has to deal with nations. I'm saying to you this morning, that God says to us, that he has given a clear witness in the creation that you see. In his providential taking care of, of it. And also in the history of the world. That his hand is clearly there. Now, question. I want to deal with two things this morning. What is the general truth that man can learn from this general revelation God has given to man? What can man learn? When I look at the universe, when I look at creation, when I look at providence, when I look at history... What are the things that we can learn? And what were they designed to teach men? Now what Paul tells us here in verse number 20 of Romans chapter 1. Uh, Paul tells us that there are two things that man can learn from these three sources of general revelation. Two things. Now you notice that the Apostle Paul, in order to get your attention and my attention... He speaks with a paradox. Look what he says in verse number 20. For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are clearly seen. Now how can you see invisible things? There is only one reason Paul chooses to use a paradox and apparent contradiction. Because it's a literary device that grabs you. When you see something that, but wait a minute, there's a contradiction here. So when Paul employs these literary devices, it is to draw your attention. He has something to say, and he shocked you by saying what it is. The invisible things of God are clearly seen. And you say, but how can invisible things be seen? It's the language of paradox. The great Christian scientist, Pascal, he used to describe God as the Deus Obscundus. What he meant by that, the hidden God. But the same Pascal is the same one that also believed that this hidden God had revealed himself. And of course, he believed in the writings of the Apostle Paul. So what Paul is now beginning to say here is that this Deus Abscondus, this, this hidden God, now manifests himself or reveals himself. This invisible God that you can't touch, you can't see, you can't put him in a test tube. You can't handle him. Uh, then how then can he be known? And Paul is saying, you can know the invisible God by what is visibly created. This is the argument that Paul is using here. And he is saying that when a man applies the laws of cause and effect, a rational being applies the laws of cause and effect, uh, he knows that Whatever effect there is, there must be an adequate cause. Let me use an illustration. When an archaeologist goes into a cave for the first time and he sees drawings etched on the cave walls. When he goes into the bowels of the earth and he unearths pottery, he unearths 
papyrus, written documents. You know, he, I, I never heard one say, it happened by chance. No, I'm serious. You ever heard it say, but, you know, I just, that happened by chance. Never in the world would you ever find an archaeologist who goes into a cave saying, no, he might say there are UFOs, uh, aliens. Uh, but never would it ever cross his mind when he sees the outline of an animal in the most crude way formed on the walls or a man's. He, he says, well, you know what? Somebody was here. Another man was here. He did that. And when he goes into the balls of the earth and he discovers pottery, he knows someone had to make the pottery. He doesn't say it just happened. And when he sees the papyrus written on it, uh, he says, you know what? Intelligent beings. But science is the only stupidest people that look at me and tell me it just happened. Could be anything more stupid than that. Let's call them for what they are. Now suppose when the U.S. astronauts went up to the moon. Suppose when they got off at the moon, they found a watch. What do you think they would say? It just happened. Time plus chance plus nothing. It just happened. Now they'd be laughed off planet earth if they would make a statement like that. But do you know the greatest timepiece is the heavens? Or you don't know that? You know that's where we... You ever have a big band in, this, in, in, in England? You know where Bing Bang gets his time from? The heavens. That's where they get the time from. So the, the great masterpiece is not the Rolex. But imagine that he would find a, a, a watch and, and just say it just happened. But yet the clock of heavens gives more precise time than the time you, the, the watch you have in your hands. And that's where they get the time from. I don't know if you know that. That might have shocked you. Now, who could put that synchronism together so it's so precise that we take our time from it? It just happened. The point that Paul is making here is that when man looks at all that is, it is only a fool that looks at all of this and says, it just happened. By chance. And those of you that Go in and do your, 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 your science subjects would know that evolution is contrary to the two laws of thermodynamics. Both of them. Both of them. That you can't get order out of disorder. That things left to themselves without control eventually go into disorder. So it can't by chance go into order. Even that science. That's not fiction, but Darwinism is fiction. But you see, it's provided a philosophical base for man to live without God. And that's why men have grabbed it. Now that brings me therefore to what can man discover? What does Paul say are the two things that man can discover when you look at the general revelation that God has given? Uh, I want you to notice that uh, Paul says two things. Go back to your chapter, verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Two things. Notice what? His what? His eternal power. And what? And Godhead. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy tells us what every man can know from general revelations and how we should respond. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 
462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.